Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. We are truly thrilled this week to have Christopher O'Brien on the show, a brand new guest and uh, hopefully a brand new friend of the show. Chris, you've been out in Colorado for a number of years. How do you go from New York City to Colorado? How does that happen? <laughs> I was called. That's a really good question. I, I grew up out west, so you know, I've always, you know, I'm a fifth generation Californian. And I grew up in Washington State, and uh, I had a dozen friends either killed or maimed in car accidents in high school. And um, I just, you know, I decided to go to New York and go to school there. Get get away from all the uh, hot rodders. Wow, that's that's and uh, a dozen friends are so killed in car. Oh man, killed or, or maimed, including myself. I almost got killed as well. But um, I spent 14 years on the East Coast and then had an opportunity to uh, move to Santa Fe, and I lasted about three days there. I just couldn't stand it, and uh, had friends up in the San Luis Valley who invited me to go up there and check it out. I, I visited one time. I didn't think anybody could actually live there, uh, so I ended up being there for 13 years. So, <laughs> well, now, wait, uh, wait, three days in Albuquerque? No, in Santa Fe. Santa Fe, I'm sorry, three days. Yeah, yeah, I saw two uh, hit uh, pedestrians hit by cars, and uh, it, it was just weird. I, what is this thing about you and watching people get hit by cars? I, I don't know. Kind of a tricksterish uh, scenario. Um, I, I just, I really felt that there was a two-class system there. There was really no. I, I didn't really feel a, a, a sense of, of community there. It's very uh, polarized. When there's jobs uh, uh, during the time of year, there's jobs. There's no housing. When there's the time of year when there's housing, there's no jobs. Just didn't seem like a good fit for uh, for Deborah and I. So, so you I ended up, up moving north, San Luis Valley. You, you just said you you couldn't believe people lived there. Why is that? Well, it's uh, first of all, I lived at 9,000 feet for the majority of the time I was there, and you know it's it's brutal in the winter. Uh, I, I saw 30 below on quite a number of occasions. In fact, it didn't get above 20 below the second winter I was there for almost two months. It's the coldest spot in America that year, yeah. and uh, I was 60 miles from the nearest stoplight, the nearest you know supermarket, movie theater, bank, one of the most remote areas of the lower 48 states. So it's the world's largest alpine valley. It's completely ringed by mountains. It's paranormal Disneyland there. Boy, Keel, Keel probably uh, is on vacation there right now. Now, you uh, posted a little message on the Paracast forums that a lot of our readers found fascinating. You said that you were living like blocks away from Keel in New York City. Tell us about that. I lived uh, on uh, just the, up the street from the Empire State Building on 36th, uh, uh, 60th, 36th Street. And I think Keel lived uh, just uh, about four or five blocks away from me. I think 32nd or uh, 33rd, maybe. And I, I thought I saw him a couple times. Uh, you know, of course, I knew what he looked like, uh, having been quite a fan of his work for years uh, since I was a kid. And, of course, I never had the, you know, the guts to walk up to him and introduce myself because he didn't seem like the kind of person that would take to that very well. Yeah. But I found out later, once I'd moved out to Colorado, I found out later that that's where he lived. And Antonio Huneas and, and a few others in New York were good friends with his. And I found out that he lived just down the, down Fifth Avenue from me. So you you later, though, you have this interesting story that you tell. You're asked him to uh, come to this um, conference you're putting together, and he told you some weird stuff. 
Yeah, he did. My my brother has the finest tour service to to most of your Mayan ruins in five countries down there, and he lived in Palenque for three years. And there's a, a wonderful hotel just down from the archaeological site uh, called the Changha. And we had this great idea to have a conference and call it the Emergence Conference and try to meld uh, you know ancient knowledge with ufology with you know, this emerging uh, transformation that the planet uh, <laughs> better be going through, we're all in trouble. So we came up with this idea of, of having the Emergence Conference, and um, I had quite a list of uh, people that were going to be there, and, and, you know, I came up with the idea of let's, let's contact John, John Keelan, see what he's up to. And much to our surprise, uh, he agreed to, uh, to come out of retirement and go down there and speak, and unfortunately, uh, <laughs> 9-11 occurred uh, just a couple, three weeks before the conference was supposed to happen, so we ended up canceling. But I did get a chance once to uh, talk with Keel quite, a, you know, for quite a while on the phone. And yeah, at one point, pretty early on in the conversation, he he said, "Well, Chris, you know, uh, you know, you might get in trouble uh, getting me down there. You might end up in jail." And I said, well, "John, what are you, what are you talking about?" And he said, "Well, that I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get you in trouble, man. You're going to end up in jail." And I told him I'd take my chances, but uh, I thought he was joking, but I think he was serious. This was in 2001, so June of 2001, so it wasn't that long ago. He was still pretty spunky then. I was actually, uh, I was told uh, by people who knew him that they, they were actually quite surprised that he had agreed to uh, to, to do the, the conference. Of course, we were going to pay him pretty well and put him up at a four-star hotel and give him a chance to see Palenque. And unfortunately, I guess, you know, 9-11 just kind of put a squash on that, so... Yeah, that kind of puts squash on a lot of things. Um, yeah, for months afterwards. All right, you're out in the uh, San Luis Valley. So, what's the story, man? What's going on out there? That's the you know, obviously that's the the two hour question. That's a two week question. Uh, <laughs> we can sit back and basically let him talk, and we'll just interrupt for commercial breaks. I'll give you the thumbnail sketch. Um, when I arrived there, I was aware of some of the activity that occurred there in the '60s. The most notable event being the first publicized unusual livestock death, um, which are now popularly misnamed cattle mutilations. But the first case that was actually widely publicized of this type was the Snippy the Horse case, which occurred in September 67. And uh, as a kid, I remember standing in line at a Safeway, and there was one of those Inquirer, uh, Globe, World News type rags on the checkout stand, and, and there was this picture of this horse that had all the flesh and tissue and everything vacuum cleaner from its shoulders to the tip of its nose was just polished clean of all uh, you know tissue bone hair muscle everything and uh the headline was flying saucers killed my horse and boy man i bugged my mom i think i was 10 i, I just dogged her for a dime or however much it cost to get it and uh, i took it home and just devoured it i probably had it read before i even got home so i knew about the san luis valley from that point on and i'd always kind of had my ears open for anything pertaining to the area of course when i arrived there in 89 one of the first things i did was ask some of the old timers about snippy and and some of the ufo sightings that were around there and i kind of pretty quickly found out that that wasn't going to endear myself with the locals if i was asking low status type questions about ufos and weird weird stuff that people around there generally don't talk to to outsiders but actually i started very innocently uh getting involved involved in all this stuff. I threw a New Year's Eve party on, you know, December 31st, uh, 92, 
had 30-some people there in the house. At one point towards the end of the party, everybody was kind of talking in little groups, and I was going around eavesdropping, and uh, everybody was talking about UFO sightings that they, they had had uh, recently uh, to that point. And so uh, I kind of listened, and I could tell that they were, sounded like they were talking about the same event. So I talked to the little town paper editor, uh, and I said, hey, would, would you like a little article about some UFO sightings? And evidently a lot of people around, you know, the little town of Crestone in the big subdivision that's right next door, which has about 5,000 lots. And at that point, there was less than 200 people there. And she said, sure, write something up. Oh, don't make it too long. And I ended up writing a 1,500-word article, three times bigger than she wanted. And uh, I was on national TV within two months. Thinking back on it, it just it kind of baffles me how that happened. But I did a two-week research and investigation process into the activity that you know had been reported, officially reported, and covered in the media as well from the late 60s up until the you know early 90s, and was just flabbergasted at the amount of uh, uh, material that I, that I uncovered. I met on the phone. I met Tom Adams, who had gone there and investigated for years since 70. I met Linda Howe. She trained me on the phone to be, how to be a field investigator, David Perkins, who had been in the area since 68, uh, Dr. Lynn Weldon at Adams State College, a bunch of ex-law enforcement types, you know, Forest Service people, Great Sand Dunes National Monument personnel. And within two weeks, I knew I just, I had just <laughs> stumbled literally on a powder keg of, of uh, just incredible amount of, of data. As soon as, uh, you know, word got out that there was a guy there and that we, we were having this whole wave of activity that continued all through the uh, fall and winter. Then I was contacted by John Schusler, who at the time was, uh, you know, one of the higher ups in uh, MUFON, and some uh, other investigators uh, found out that I was willing to uh, yeah, log the thousands of miles it would take to investigate the area. And so I, I very quickly uh, had a network of support structure, people training me how to how to be a pro, you know to do proper investigations and how to research properly using proper I call it a bedside manner in terms of interviewing witnesses. Within three months, probably two and a half months, um, I was contacted by the TV show Sightings and uh, ended up doing four episodes, uh, four segments with uh, Sightings. And, uh, you know, as soon as the Internet hit, then boom, then it really went quantum. I had so many people at one point contacting me for information about my work there that um, I started publishing a little Mysterious Valley report, I called it. You know, I was sending out hundreds of these a month, and it was just, I wasn't charging anybody for them. I I just was doing it as a service, and um, I pretty soon realized that, boy, I should be collecting all this stuff and and doing it in a narrative form so that I can actually, you know, have a book. And so I did a book proposal, and uh, I was amazed, and everybody around me was amazed that St. Martin's Press signed me to do a book. That was my first book, The Mysterious Valley. The thing that I'm most proud about that book is I got 167 people to sign release forms for me to use their names legally in the book. Now, there's yeah, very few UFO books that, that can say yep. that. That that was harder than, than writing the book, actually, to try to get a release form from the BBC sometime. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, getting people to go on record with any of this stuff is just, like, so impossible. Yeah, I had a dozen yeah. law enforcement officers, ex-military guys, ex-intelligence uh, uh, people, Department of Interior employees. It was pretty amazing, actually. Now, looking back at it, um, I realized that um, I do have a gift of, of working out in the field and, and working with people in a local area. I very early on decided just to um, focus my intentions and my investigative process on like a Petri dish, uh, similar to the way Keel did in the Mount, uh, the Point Pleasant work, uh, you know, that resulted in the Mothman book. I didn't have blinders on either. I was looking for aberrant social behavior, um, weird fires, unusual weather, 
unusual amounts of roadkill. And I saw these interesting uh, parallels and correlations of strange events in nature, strange events in the society, seemed to, to ebb and flow along with the, uh, the paranormal reports, uh, whether they were the cattle mutilations or the UFO reports or strange, you know, crypto creature type, type things. I made a big effort to really have focus on that particular perfectly defined Petri dish. Because I was a local and I lived there, people were willing to talk to me. Like when Linda Howe goes out somewhere and flounces in as the glam queen of ufology and, you know, thinks everybody's going to open up and talk to her, they're not, she's not going to get the good stuff. There's no way. Uh, you have to live somewhere to really properly investigate a place. If you're going to be a part of a team that goes into some place, you have to utilize a, a teamwork approach with, with locals on the ground. Yeah, there's social engineering stuff going on when you're doing real field work. Well, oh, absolutely. Just... People call me a ufologist and I cringe. It's like, oh, don't call me that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a, if anything, I'm a, I'm a sociologist or I'm a, an anomalist uh, investigator or something, anything but that, that the big UFO uh, tag, you know. I don't believe in aliens. I think we're aliens. They're probably more terrestrial than we are. Oh, now you're really opening up the can of worms. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're uh, talking today with Christopher O'Brien. We won't call him a UFO researcher. We're going to call him a paranormalist. 
Investigative journalist is kind of the okay. tag I use. All right, we like that. Investigative journalist. So Gene paid you a, a Keel style tribute with Fortian, which is uh, certainly probably applicable here. How so, about we stick with that because I think that has more sex appeal. Okay. <laughs> Hey, just don't call me late for dinner. Yo, yo, you know what I'm saying. So here's the thing. In your own personal background, now, people often get involved with this stuff because they have an experience when they're when they're young. Now, you talked oh, about... Well, I knew that was coming. Well, yeah, you, you definitely knew that was coming. So what's the deal with that? I had a visitation when I was six years old in Bellevue, Washington in 1963. It was unmistakable. It changed my life. I have never been the same since. I found out years later that John Keel investigated similar reports from the two towns surrounding me that same spring of 63. Basically, in a nutshell, I was woken up in my basement bedroom in Medina, Washington, which is, you know, where Bill Gates lives in Bellevue. Bill Gates would be on my paper route if I still had my paper route today. And I was woken up and there was these, all I could see were the shadow silhouettes of four, uh, possibly five beings, large-headed beings, extremely skinny. I called, I described them to my, my family as stick men. They each were holding a probably a foot and a half, two foot glittering wand I, or spear, I, I kind of called it when I, was, I didn't know what else to call it as a six-year-old. And uh, I wasn't paralyzed. I was totally awake, totally conscious. I dashed out of my room, ran up the stairs and turned the, the stairs to go up to the second floor to my folks' bedroom to wake them up. The beans is either the same four or five or a different group was at the top of the stairs looking at me. And that's where I got my first good look at them. And I had no choice but to go through the kitchen. I went out the kitchen door and forgot that my dad had just put the screen door on and I slammed into the screen door and I literally fell down. There's no doubt in my mind at that point that I was awake. At this point, they were out in the lawn. They were either teleporting themselves or there was multiple groups. I'm not sure, but they kept heading me off and almost hurting me. So I ended up going down the driveway through a secret passage in our big laurel hedge to go to the neighbors to pound on their door to get on the phone and call my parents. And um, I saw their heads bobbing with a slight bob to the them. They kind of moved like cattails is the only way I could describe it. They, they glided when they moved. But I could see their heads coming because I was up on a, a slight vantage point to the lawn where I had come through the hedge. And I could see their heads coming through. They're about the same height as me. You know, I was six years old, so they're about four feet tall, maybe a little less. I pounded on the door and nobody answered. And so I ran out towards the next neighbor over and they had this big, huge yard with a, with a farm light, a yard light. Much to my credit, I'm still very proud of myself for this. I conducted my first <laughs> field experiment. I stood out in the middle of the lawn and waited for him to come through the light so I could get a really good look at him. They came towards me and, and the light was, you know, casting a, a pretty defined glow on the ground, on the, on the lawn and the driveway. They turned sideways like pieces of paper and disappeared. I could just barely make them out as they came through the light. They and knew that you, you were doing that. I freaked. I ran as fast as I could to the Barkers. I pounded on the door and the last thing I remember is the light coming on. And the next thing I knew, I was five houses away on a, a front porch, somebody's front porch, and my sister was coming down. She looked like an angel with her, her bedclothes, you know, flapping in the wind as she's running down the street. Evidently, she somebody had called and uh, said, your little boy is out here totally hysterical. And she took her, you know, a bit of time. She said 20 minutes. Uh, I think it was longer than that to find me. I guess I was so freaked. She told me years later, I tried to nurse her when I was in bed. She took me into bed with her just to, you know, calm me down. She said, I, I just, you know, regressed into an infant because I was mm -hmm. so uh, so freaked out about 
about it. When I woke up the next morning, of course, you know, I told the family the story, and of course, you know, my brother believed me, but I mean, he was five. He, he believed me, but everybody else said, oh, you were just having a nightmare, and it's like, yeah, what about the bump on my head from hitting the screen door, you know? <laughs> Some nightmare. In answer to your question, it's actually the, the, the most detailed description of that I've ever given publicly about that. I've, I've kind of hid that for years, so I didn't want that to color people's impression of my work or have it in any way negatively impact my work. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, that changed my life. Uh, I have devoured everything I could get my hands on on this subject since then. But, you know, in New York City, of course, you don't admit stuff like that. So I was a closet buff, if you will, for many years. And it wasn't until I got out and had that New Year's Eve party that that I kind of came out of the closet, so to speak, and, and really uh, rolled my sleeves up. And, geez, in six years, I put almost 300,000 miles on my truck. Jeez. And, uh, you know, I covered 10,000 square miles. So. Let's talk about that episode for a minute, because I'm curious, a couple of curiosities about that. So you never saw any sort of a craft, right? There was no, no craft involved with this. I did later. I saw um, I had another experience, but not in that particular event, no. Not in that one. When they came into the light, and you said, and then they, they, they turned sideways and sort of like, almost as if they were turning, and at the same time they were turning, they were sort of phasing out. The only way I can describe it is they were as thin as pieces of paper, and when you look at a piece of paper holding it up to you, and then you turn it on edge, yeah. I could tell, by the, it was like they, were, they didn't have depth. They were like facades that were extremely paper thin. That's the only way I can describe it. I, I've heard of a, a somewhat similar description in terms of uh, an issue about their physicality or lack thereof. When they came into the light, uh, now you could still see some amount of detail on them. Kind of a weird question. Do you remember color? Were they gray? Were they beige? It, it was kind of hard to tell because they really weren't well lit. But they yeah. definitely, they weren't white colored, like bright white. They, they definitely had kind of a grayish, I'd say almost like a dirty gray color. All right. The only way yeah, I can so describe it. And for the life of me, I can't remember what their eyes look like. Well, now, this becomes to be an interesting question here. Are we seeing here when something like that happens that the things that we're looking at, this gets to the John Keel stuff, take the form of what we expect, believe, imagine? No, no. Um, at six years old, I was not allowed to watch TV. Mm. I had very little exposure to the media. I had very little exposure to, uh, I'd never seen a science fiction movie. I wasn't allowed. Like I said, I, I could watch the Disney show, Ed Sullivan, you know, and maybe sports with my dad, but we were not allowed to watch TV. Yeah, but you're describing something in 1963. There wasn't any kind of media description of the beings like you're describing in 63. I didn't even know that there was such thing as aliens then. Yeah. I, the whole concept had never, you know, up until that point, I was totally, you know, I was a little kid. I was trying to get, you know, to, to play with the big boys and, and be able to play baseball and soccer with, with, with the, the older kids, you know, and, and, and learn, you know, do well in, in my first grade class, you know. I mean, that's, that was the extent of my reality, that and work my ass off around the house, you know, in the yard. And that's all I did. I didn't have uh, any exposure to like like people do today. I mean, by the time you're six years old, you can operate a computer. You know that there's all sorts of different alien types. There's, time is compressed so much now that we're losing, uh, you know, the kids of the world are, are losing their chance of being innocent and young. I, I people think, grow up real fast in this day and age. I, I think I'd have to agree with you on that one. You wake up in your bedroom. Now, you said there was a light in the bed. What, what was it that woke you up? Was this light? I don't know what woke me up. All I remember is there was a faint glow coming in from the windows, which if I stood on my bed, I would be right at ground level. So I was like, you know, okay. the, the basement level was not quite a full 
story below ground. It was only a half story, so I did have some light coming in from the outside, and that they were silhouetted by that light. Any sound at all from them? Not. I can't remember any sounds. I can't remember any. Uh, there was no communication. The only thing I remember is they were watching me. You know, they were stick men, and they were watching me, and I had no idea what they were. I, it was so totally beyond my, my comprehension. Still to this day, I, I wonder, you know, what you know, what was the motivation for them to show up and do that? Uh, and it's it's really it's colored my thinking when I get into you know the realms of you know what are pure experiences and what are front loaded experiences where where we right. fill in the details. You know, I think most encounters uh, today are pretty much most of the details are filled in by the experiencer. That was a pure experience, uh, and one of the mo- more pure experiences that I can recall ever hearing about even. Quick question for you about these these silver sticks or spears. Did they all have them? You know, I don't remember. I say at least three of them did. Uh, you know, I don't remember. There seemed to be one that was hanging hanging uh, behind. There were like mm-hmm. three, I think, in front of me, and there seemed to be one or maybe two behind. And the, the three in front had them, and and those had a, a some sort of light source. All right. So that experience happens, and uh, obviously leaves this this very deep impression on you. you. You run into the problem where your parents are are not believing you as you, you tell them this. So, oh, yeah. Do you think that then plays into you sort of quieting up about Did you tell your friends about this at the time? No. No, I, I, I was, I was uh, embarrassed by it. Yeah. I was a pretty bright little kid. I learned to read and write when I was four. I, I still consider myself pretty, pretty smart. Relatively speaking to my intelligence level back then, I was off the charts. <laughs> and I knew better. I knew better than to bring it up because I, I just knew that it was so out of the, out of the pale that, that you know, it, it would impact my relationships. You had a sense of being politically correct at six years old. I knew that if I talked about this, my brother told people, and they mentioned it a couple of times growing up, but, but it was never, I always uh, tried to avoid the conversation. So, this is kind of an odd question for you. In the years that came after that, did you ever have a replay of this in your dreamscape at all? Yeah, I did, but it was, I guess, what would be called now a screen image. I had a reoccurring dream of having to go across a large, barely lit room and there were invisible holes that I could fall into. And at the other end was an elevator and the elevator doors were open and the elevator was lit and inside was Casper the Friendly friendly Ghost <laughs> with his arm outstretched like frozen. And it was my job to get to that door and I would always wake up uh, at some point trying to uh, tiptoe across the floor and not fall in these invisible holes. Yeah. I had that dream on a number of occasions. And also the word poodle. Excuse me? Sort of poodle. Um, I was given some word uh, during one of these dreams, and it had to do with something called a poodle, which was the first time that I had any sort of indication of a vehicle or ship. The poodle was a name of some sort of technological device. You know, I, I'm not sure what it was. It, it seemed like a tube, almost like a uh, like a birth trauma dream or something, I guess. I, I've researched this a little bit. It may have been some sort of birth trauma recall or something. I, I, I don't know, but I was given this name, Poodle, and I do remember it even, you know, geez, you know, 45 years later. <laughs> you know? Oh, boy. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. 
Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk-free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Christopher yeah. O'Brien joining us. I call him a Fordian. You can call him what you want, but I think he's well, it, investigative journalist and an experiencer. Here we go. He's yeah, well, that oh boy, oh, man, have I seen stuff since then? Oh, well, you, so good ooh, video too. Oh, you have? Of course, man. I had a phone tree of people in the San Luis Valley. I'd go out and run on my rooftop and watch them go by. <laughs> Come again? Yeah, I, I've seen dozens and dozens of UFOs. All different types. Very few structured craft. The only real good structured craft sighting I had uh, was only 150 feet away from me. It flew right in front of our car. What was it? When? When? Okay, so let's talk about details. When? Where? What? This was in the Levita Military Operations Area, over the mountains, over the Sangre de Cristos, directly east of me, about 15 miles. But you have to go over 14,000 foot mountains to get there. So in order to drive there, it would take three three hours to get there, even though it was only 15 miles away. Um, I was driving with my girlfriend and her daughter, and uh, we were cruising down Highway 69, coming from Westcliff to Gardner, and this thing flew out from behind a hill, went right across the road, couldn't have been 150 feet away from us. I wasn't driving, so I got a chance to really get a good look at it. It looked like something out of the Jetsons, is the only way I can describe it. It had a vertical, uh, a slight vertical, stubby vertical tape, uh, stabilizer thing, but the rest of it was very saucer looking. And I found out later that these types of objects have been seen in the valley since at least 65 um, there was a whole slew of sightings in 66 and 67 and they were also seen going in and out of Middle Creek Hill which is right in the Sangres on the other side from where I saw it so they would dive bomb cars and it was about 12, 13 feet maybe long 
what was weird about it, I got a really good look at it as, it, as it went across the Weirfnell Valley, and it looked like you'd imagine a fishing lure would look when you when you're reeling it in really fast. It was like skipping, like yep. like it was being reeled in. So I don't know. It, you know, it was right in the middle of our one of our largest uh, training areas for Air National Guard. I mean, <laughs> so you know, the jury's out on what that was. But man, I'll tell you, it you see something that close, go go zipping by. It's kind of hard to argue with it. About what height was it off the ground? 50 feet, maybe. So it's real low. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was right perfectly mirrored in our, our windshield. Uh, sound? Anything? Mm-mm. I rolled the window down immediately. I didn't hear anything. Yeah, perfectly silent. Yeah. Metallic, when you say color, shiny, matte? Um, dull aluminum color. It seemed like to have a little cupola. I couldn't really tell. It was really zipping along. Um, I did get a sense of a slight bump on the back end of it, like a stabilizer, vertical stabilizer. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And again, I didn't really get a sense of how how deep it was. How, um, in other words, whether whether it was a discoidal shape or whether it was slightly boomerang shaped. But it seemed like something out of the Jetsons. That's the only way I can describe it. Uh, I mean, I've always had my eyes open for something uh, similar. And of course, I did a, uh, a research on uh, unpiloted uh, drones and, and and whatnot. And I haven't seen anything that looks remotely like it uh, in in my research. And I did I did do a, a bit of research on trying to figure out if this was one of ours, then there should be some kind of, you know, something that you could find, uh, research and find. A number of years later, I think in probably the 97, 98, I did see something that was kind of similar that Boeing announced that they were testing, but it was much bigger than this. This was only about 12 foot. What did your girlfriend, uh, how did she respond when this happened? <laughs> you know, at first we thought it was a model plane because we thought it was way much closer to us. But then, you know, because she was driving, she couldn't really look at it as well as I could. I, I realized that, no, it was about 150 feet away instead of 40 or 50 feet away, which obviously, you know, affects your ability to determine its actual size. Um, sure. It's very difficult when you're driving to get a good, accurate, you know, idea of that. So I was able to, to really get a good look at it. And... um didn't make any sound. You know, that was, <laughs> maybe she was just aware that the next seven years were going to be absolutely mind-blowing. So, uh, you know, she was like, oh, well, that was weird, you know. Uh, where do you want to go for lunch, you know? <laughs> 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 well, she saw, we both saw some amazing stuff uh, over the next seven years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, you said that was the one structure craft, and that would then mean you saw... Well, the, the one that was really close, close proximity. We saw... Uh, an interesting sort of almost like a Kenneth Arnold type crescent object that flew across the road. It was about two miles away and uh, and then did a falling leaf pattern down into an area that was sort of a, a depression area in the, in the Chico out in the prairie. And we dashed, we drove as fast as we could to get there and we crisscrossed the whole area out there and we didn't see anything. But we both saw it and it did the classic falling leaf pattern to the ground. That's the only time I've seen that. Yeah, except for, you know, I've seen some lights do that in the sky, but I've never seen anything structured like that do that. Right. So, <laughs> you, you saw lots of other stuff. Oh, um, you name it, man. I've seen it all. I've seen huge green fireballs. I've seen orange, red, yellow, uh, incandescent bulb, white orbs, little tiny baseball-sized, brilliant ruby red orbs that zipped alongside our car when, the, when my band was coming back from recording in Denver. Jeez, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Huge objects that blotted out the stars. Oh, man. Now you're saying I mean, like, It's all in my database. Uh, our strange planet. Just go to San Luis Valley, the section on San Luis Valley, and go to the report log. It's all there. So, okay, and talking to other people who live near, because obviously you're living there all this time. Now you're, you're seeing this stuff. You're talking to other people who live in the area. 
What are they telling you? I mean, what's the attitude about this from people who have been living there all their lives, grown up, and presumably have been seeing this stuff for a long time? Yeah, it's it's very normal for people there. As as, as people became more and more aware that that I was objective, that I wasn't judgmental, that I didn't have some sort of agenda, that I was totally open-minded, and I, most importantly, I honored all requests for anonymity. People opened up and just gushed to me. The amount of activity that went on between 1992 and November and 1999 is the largest, most intense sighting wave of activity in the United States. And, and I'm willing to back that up with data. I had 17 calls in one day, just to give you an idea of how intense it got. It was nightly for, for weeks at a time. Every night we'd have reports. Every day we would have reports. Some days and nights, two, three, four, five reports of different things. Of course, there'd be some times where I'd have reports from various individuals that had a, a different vantage point on the same event, but there are many times where we'd have just stuff going on all over the valley there. People generally in the north end of the valley tend to, you know, be a little bit more up to speed on this stuff, tend to be a little bit more scientific and objective in their you know, their ability to uh, interpret what they're seeing. Uh, the south end of the valley oftentimes, uh, well, not oftentimes, but uh, on a surprising number of occasions, especially the light phenomenon, would be reported as witches. Mm. Witches supposedly in the valley, you know, if they're in a hurry, they turn into balls of light and uh, instead of an animal form. And so I would get calls from Hispanics in broken English saying, they saw a witch, they saw a witch. Vimos una bruja, vimos una bruja volando. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on Google Earth right now, Chris. I'm looking at um, sort of an overhead view of, of the uh, San Luis Valley. You've got the southern area, Alamosa. Is that is that accurate? That's right in the center of the valley. The valley uh, ge okay. geographically goes down to Taos. The, okay. the actual name of the San Luis Valley stops at the Colorado border. But if you look at that whole valley, it's shaped like a football. Yep. It goes all the way down to Taos, and then just over the northern end is Salida. Now, this is Taos, New Mexico, where they've been reporting for years that weird underground hum. It's been reported since 1777. Huh. Are there similar uh, sort of sound anomalies up in the middle yeah. of the valley oh, yeah. there? Oh, sometimes when... Here's an interesting correlation as well. Um, the hum tends to be louder uh, when we have UFO sighting waves, especially if it's in the winter. Uh, in the wintertime, uh, I've got one guy that's right by the Great Sand Dunes. He can't sleep in his house because it's so loud. He's got a, a house that's set into the hillside, and it's just it drives him and his, his wife and his, his family nuts. And they have to go stay in their motel. <laughs> so has anybody gone out there? Here's a stupid, I'll give you a stupid question. So you got a guy like that going through this sound situation. Boy, you know, where's the person with the Earthworks microphone out right, there? Exactly. Right, I mean, you know, capture that and then do some real sonic analysis on that. See what the hell the frequency waveform looks like. Yep, and I've got some recordings of vibrating utility poles, too, that tend to, to kick off when we have siding waves. I've got very good recordings of those. The hum is really difficult to pick up because it's such a low-frequency sound, uh, although there is PCM mics and stuff that, that are able to pick that up. Right. Um, I just didn't have the budget to. I spent my life savings running around doing this. So you know, I mean, I was fortunate to be funded—not funded, but helped out by Lawrence Rockefeller for a couple of years. That really did help me in the late '90s. Oh, do tell, because uh, you know what, what that puts you in a sort of a unique little club. It's a club that when people hear it, I know that in some of the emails that I get, when people find out someone's gotten money from the Rockefeller Initiative, you know, they go like, "Uh oh." 
No, it wasn't from the initiative. It was a gift. Oh, all right. Tell us about that. If you do some research about the San Luis Valley, especially Crestone and the Baca Grande, you'll find out that there's a lot of conspiracy buffs that, that point out that Maurice Strong, who's supposedly Dr. Evil, in fact, I've got a rare photograph of him pretending to be uh, Dr. <laughs> Evil with the, with the pinky up to his chin, dressed in the name. Oh, man. Oh, it's a classic. It's in my uh, Secrets of the Mysterious Valley book. I was very fortunate to find that. Uh, Maurice Strong was the Undersecretary General for the Environment for the UN. He was also in charge of the bureaucratic reorganization of the UN in the late 90s. And uh, he's been on the short list to be Secretary General for years. He's never there. I mean, he's always traveling around the world. Most of the time now he's in China. But uh, Hannah, his wife, uh, lived two houses away from me for seven years. And I got really close to her, her daughters, uh, Chris, Christina and, and Suzanne. And Hannah called me one day and said, you know, she would trot me out. She'd invite me to these parties when she'd have these highfalutin society people there and, you know, and movers and shakers in society and politics and stuff. And uh, I don't want to start dropping names, but I met some pretty interesting people. One day she called me up and said, I don't know what you're doing right now, but it's not as important as what you're going to be doing. Get a package of your research together and get over here right away. You know, I was just four or five minute walk from her house. So I, you know, I put together a package of stuff and, yeah. and I went over there. And as I got up to her front door, John Mack was leaving and Sequoia Trueblood. I don't know if you know that guy, but boy, there's a little research for some of the listeners out there. He's a very interesting character. <laughs> Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. You're in the Paracast with James Franklin and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you what, before um, we get into more interesting characters, we have an extremely, extraordinarily interesting character by the name of Christopher O'Brien. Is that interesting enough? <laughs> How am I doing, dudes? Oh, this is great. All right, so now you so you go over to her house. You see these these uh, real interesting people leaving, and I don't know who that second guy is. So you have to tell us about him. Well, yeah, he's a very interesting character. He was Operation Phoenix and Nam. He was long range recon uh, special forces, a real nasty guy who's now a spiritual metaphysician and elder. Anyway, I thought I'd blown it. I thought I, she she wanted me to meet John Mack, and I you know he's leaving, and I, I shook his hand. He said, oh. We gotta go. Bye. And so she goes, she goes, come on inside. And Lawrence is standing there. Of course, I instantly recognized him. And uh, I got to spend one on one the entire afternoon and evening with him. And he had so much fun. He invited me back. And I spent, you know, most of the next day with him over at Hannah's house. Almost killed him accidentally. You almost accidentally killed Lawrence Rockets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got in a little bit of trouble, too. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, well, check this out. I mean, we went through it all, man. We went through every bit of my research, all my theories. Uh, you know, I, I really gently tried to point out that 
you know, most crop circles, he really loved crop circles. He was really into it. In fact, he gave me Michael Glickman's excellent book called Corn Circles, which is a, a book that shows the patterning of uh, complexity in the crop circle phenomenon. He gave that to me when he le- as he left. But at one point, we kind of ran out of paranormal stuff to talk about. So I wanted to know about what it was like to, you know, run Japan after the war and eugenics and, you know, stuff that, you know, he wasn't really that fond of, I guess, to talk about. Yeah. But at one point, I said, hey, you know, <laughs> You know, Lawrence, you know, I, I go on the Internet, and I, I just can't help but notice that a lot of people on the Internet think your little brother David's the Antichrist. And he started he started laughing, started laughing real hard, and then it turned into a cough, and he got apoplectic, and he couldn't stop. And I patted him on the back, and we got him some water, and he had to go in and lay down, and he was turning blue. And I thought, <laughs> I, thought I killed him. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't making that up either, man. Oh, that's just nuts. Uh, but evidently it struck a chord because, you know, as soon as he got back to New York, he fired me off a personal fatty check uh, and, and said, I read it to you. It's on my wall, a letter. So thank you for your letter of July 30th and for your update on the tree circles. I share in your enthusiasm and am, am pleased to send you the enclosed gift to help in your photographic work. Since I'm very much interested in your findings, I would like you to keep me fully informed on how the work is proceeding and any developments in the field in general. With best wishes. Mm. So so how much did he send you? As much as he could without having me get taxed for it, $10,000. Wow, that's fabulous. As soon as, as soon as the year turned over, he sent me another 10 Wow. You can, I didn't know this until he did this, but you can gift somebody up to $10,000 and as long as you don't write it off and they don't have to declare it. Hmm. Well, now that's real interesting. That's really interesting. So, you know, here he was really putting his money where his mouth is. Gene, why can't we be wealthy and do this kind of stuff? Well, I want to wonder why listeners don't send us $10,000 every year. You know, if I had to choose the one program that I've been listening to lately that that deserves it, it's you guys, man. I've had so much fun going through your archives. That's real sweet of you. That's and and Well, it's really good. It's good to hear people that don't. They'll call a spade a spade and ask the tough questions and, and don't, you know, you know, you guys are in this because you're seekers. You're not in it because you're entertaining people. And that's the problem. This, you know, this whole entertainment complex that I've been dealing with this with the media for years. I mean, UFO hunters, Bill Burns, I'm telling you, uh, get me in the same room with that guy, lock the doors because boy, he and I are going to have a uh, real talking to each other. Now you know that. You know what's going to happen I know he's one of your advertisers, so I got to be... No, no, not anymore. anymore. Check it out. Yeah, no, his wife recently called me and Gene Calvinists and witch hunters. Well, oh yeah, he's a lying little sack of... Hey, hey, hey. man. Oh, man, gee, there you go. Now, see? See, look at that, Gene. What do we do here? What are we doing? why did Bill Burns attend law school for four years? Well, all I know is he stole one of my classic lines, and he took me, you know, for his gateway segment. I, you probably don't want to use any of this. Listen, oh, stop for a minute. We're going to totally use this. So, you know, okay. just say this knowing it. Yeah, yeah, this is staying in. Okay, well, okay, I, I'll be public with this. You know, I, I posted on a blog. I posted on my blog about this. They came to Sedona, and they wanted to do a segment on gateways, portals. They couldn't use the word portal because the History Channel didn't want them to use that word, so that it's gateways. So they sat me down for a two-hour interview. First of all, I got them all their witnesses, basically. I co-produced the darn thing. We did a ton of work for them because I thought maybe these guys, you know, the, the, the answer to, you know, ufology's disdain of the media. Well, they took my two-hour interview, and every 
everything I talked about, the San Luis Valley, they made it sound like I was talking about Sedona. Oh, Duh. I mean, blatantly. And, and I went through it Man. word for word. I did a transcript and went through it word for word. And they covered their ass because they used the word valley one time. And all through the shoot, I was telling them, I am not talking about Sedona. I am talking about Colorado. It's 350 miles away from here. I'm not talking about Sedona. And they cut and pasted my sentences. The only time in 30 episodes or 30 segments that I've done with the media that I've ever had this happen. And I'm telling you, I was really irate. And that was on UFO Hunters? Yep. Fascinating. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You know. Yeah, just get that compilation, that season one compilation, and check it out. Yeah. See, and being a show where we're trying to ask honest questions... It's like you just, you can't win. You can't win. And, you know, now we shouldn't veer off in this direction. Of course, the listeners are going to say, well, they're talking about themselves again, those egotistical freaks. It's like, no, just, it's just, just, thank you, Chris, for acknowledging that. Well, I just have such a problem with, with how the media, they get a bunch of kids out of film school that don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe they can research, but what they're researching, they have no, they have no connection to it at all. And so, you know, they wanted me to help out with a cattle mutilation segment, and this this one researcher kid calls me and goes, "Well, I found a picture of this deer up on top of a telephone pole. Uh, do you know where I can find a good copy of that? Boy, aliens are really being tricky, aren't they?" I'm like, "Oh my god! Everybody who knows that picture knows that a train hit the darn thing and knocked it up there. I mean, come on! They're just mystery mongering, trying to get the you know just." They shoot at the lowest common denominator. Anybody with any knowledge about this field looks at these shows. I mean, there have been exceptions. Sightings did a pretty good job, and they were, but but they sensationalized a lot of things. And you know, it, it's a reoccurring theme all through the the whole you know business of entertainment. I mean, they just aren't designed. They're not built to handle this subject matter in a in a proper manner. You know, they want young, good-looking people on there. They don't want a bunch of old fogies that know what the hell they're talking about on there. They, and it burns would be you know one of the glaring exceptions, but you know I'd like to know a little bit more about his background and his possible connections to certain agencies and other things that you know I've heard little rumblings here and there about, and and, and about other people too. I mean I could start pointing fingers and naming names about some pretty uh, well-known people in the field. This field is totally ill-infiltrated with disinformation artists, with uh, people that try to create a you know disharmony and try to create separation between individuals and groups. And, you know, look at NICAP. I mean, we could go go through the whole... And you know what? Why don't you start with NICAP? Only because I had some run-ins with NICAP, okay? This was at the time that Richard Hall was pretty much running the show. This is in the latter years of Kehoe's association with them. So Kehoe would come in maybe once a week or something like that. Every day, it was Richard Hall. And I walked in there. This is back in the 60s. I walked into the headquarters at NICAP at Connecticut Avenue Northwest, right near where Michael Rennie is shot down in the movie Day the Earth Stood Still, near DuPont Circle, okay? Classic location. It's got to be 50 yards from that location of that movie. Okay. So I walk in there, and I've been there before and was treated okay. And I'm there with a few other researchers, including, I believe, Rick Hilberg and Alan Greenfield has been on the show. And Richard Hall looks at me, points his finger at me and says, you're not welcome here. Well, you want to know about Richard Hall, get Ray Stanford on here. He'll tell you about Richard Hall. <laughs> yes, it's the Paracast, making friends. He'll tell you about a bunch of people, and he makes no bones about it. He's got the goods on, on quite a number of people. I feel a little bit out of my league going back that far, but I try to stick to what I can, uh, you know, personally uh, um, relate. 
from my own personal experiences uh, as opposed to going on innuendo and hearsay and all the rest of it. So, Well, what I say is a personal experience. It was written right, exactly. up in Saucer News and Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers at the time because we talked to Ray about it. And Ray had an article called No Investigations Can Actually Proceed, which is another way of NICAP. Right. <laughs> interpreting NICAP. And of course, right. a lot of people around that time would call it, frankly, NICRAP. Yeah, yeah, it, it went down real fast. You know, I mean, I don't want to really actually get into the... <laughs> don't want to get myself in more trouble than I'm already in. But yeah, it's, it's a big problem in the field, and that's why I've always kept a low profile, as low as I can, uh, being on TV so much. And I, I just try to keep my nose to the grindstone and really focus on the experiencers. Um, this is a major uh, bone of contention with me. Everybody's so, you know, so interested in, in the nuts and bolts and what did, you know, what did it look like? What did it do? Then what did it do? And nobody bothers to follow up with the people that have the experiences. I cultivated relationships with my witnesses. I'd call them up weeks later, months later. Hey, how you doing? How you feel now about it? Are you okay? How's your kid's basketball team doing? What do you think of the price of beef? You know, and I think the experiencer is more important than the actual thing they experience. Okay, it's the now, impact on what about the so? But listen, Chris. So the thing is, and, and I, on a certain level, I totally agree with you on that. Then there are people that say, well, if you get too friendly with the people you're studying, what happens to objectivity? So how do you how do you respond to someone who would ask you that? Well, again, it's I don't actually befriend them. I just let them know that I'm there in case they need someone to talk to. I really don't consider my for for a, a long time uh, in the mid 90s rather I felt like I was like a paranormal shrink where people <laughs> would 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 confide in me things uh, about how they were responding you know how their their emotional bodies were were being impacted by the things that they were experiencing and were out of their norm you know again I always kind of held them it's like slightly at arm's length but at the same time I always let them know that my phone is there for you if you need to call and talk to somebody I'm there for you I mean I worked on people who I, I would call them, I would know that they had an experience and their friends would tell me they had an experience and I would call and just say, hey, I'm a, my name's Chris O'Brien and, you know, I, I'm just calling to introduce myself and uh, see how you're doing and, uh, you know, I'd carry on a two or three minute conversation and never ask a, a question about why I was calling and then hang up. And I just do this every so often I call and then finally they just <laughs> blurt out, okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And I never <laughs> ask. See, there's a little clue for all you aspiring field investigators out there. Oftentimes that, that reverse psychology is the way to go with some people who are real tightly clammed up about something. In a sense, in a peripheral sense, befriend them, at least get onto a first name basis with them. And then you, it's, it's amazing how uh, how people will open up once they feel comfortable with you. We, we wouldn't know how to do that. No, 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 no. We, we have no clue how that would work. We're going to do our hourly break in just a moment. It seems like it only started 10 minutes ago, Chris. So right. tell our listeners where to get more information about you if they are curious, and we're sure they will be. Well, I do have a website, of course. It's Our Strange Planet, O-U-R, Strange Planet, Our Strange Planet. We do have a strange planet, ourstrangeplanet.com. 
there, you know, I, I invite everybody to go there and, and check out my database. I mean, my database I, I have allowed to be public domain ever since it's been compiled. It's all there. Uh, some of the names have been changed to protect the guilty, and uh, I haven't used some names because people ask me not to, but if a person's name has been used in the public domain, in other words, if the media has gotten a hold of them and publicized their names, and I will use their names. Oftentimes, I ask them for permission before I do that. Sometimes I don't because I don't know how to get in touch with them. But uh, that's a good way to do it. And uh, OurStrangePlanet.com. Okay, OurStrangePlanet.com. And psychologist or would-be psychologist Christopher <laughs> O'Brien, 40 and researcher, experiencer, and all sorts of titles we can confer upon him. Very good titles. He'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. The following segment is paid for by New Vitality. Joining me today is health journalist and investigative reporter Rob Martin. You see, Rob's here to discuss the issue of men's health. And I'm talking about the health of your prostate, and it's something that every man should be thinking about. And I'll tell you, I'm a baby boomer. So I think this is something that can come up close and personal to me. So, Rob, thank you for joining us. Hi, Gene. How are you? And I'm a baby boomer, too. Uh-oh. Okay, two old men who are going to be crabbing <laughs> on the street corner here. We're going to be sit down on the park bench, and we're going to talk. Sure. Okay, statistically, how many men will suffer from prostate problems? I hate to tell you, but how about 100%? This is part of aging, and I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, if you don't do anything about it, if you're not proactive, you're not going to be able to avoid it. Okay. Is it true that when compared to the world's population, American men have a higher risk for prostate problems? Well, look, the American diet, uh, we know, it's well documented. It's uh, laden in fat and sugars and carbohydrates, empty carbohydrates. And unfortunately, when you live for many years on that kind of diet, it's going to have a major impact on your body, on your cardiovascular system, on your immune system. And certainly uh, the prostate is not immune uh, from that impact. Okay, at what age would we expect to have symptoms from some kind of prostate problem? Well, depending on your family history, normally 40 seems to be the starting point. If there is a family history, it could be younger, it could be 30. But most men start seeing changes when they hit 40 years of age. Okay, so how do we know if our prostate gland is enlarged? It's not something that we normally just look at and say, hey, that's bigger. Well, you should be going every year to your physician. You should be getting your blood work done. You should have a physical exam. You should have a digital exam where the doctor will examine the prostate, and he'll let you know whether it's enlarged or not. Uh, you may start getting symptoms before then, of course, and this is something that men, uh, you can't ignore it because when you're waking up at night for bathroom trips and when you go to the bathroom, you have a weak urine stream, and these things start developing, a guy notices this stuff. So that's one of the major symptoms, the fact that you go to the bathroom more often. Well, yeah. I mean, that's uh, I mean, plenty of guys listening right now. I'm sure they can relate to this. You start getting up once, twice, sometimes three or more times a night. And this can be a horrible disruption. Not only for yourself, your wife, uh, you're waking her up all night long. Believe it or not, women take a big interest in this subject. I have found through the years because, number one, women uh, tend to be the, the person in the household that uh, is sort of the quarterback of health care. Men tend to avoid these things. 
And uh, the, the women notice that the guy, his behavior, his health behavior, his patterns are changing. They're not changing for the better. So women normally pay attention to these conversations. Looking at the prostate, and we don't want to do that directly, but what is happening to it that can cause this kind of trouble? Yeah, well, what happens is the prostate is a small gland, and when you're young, it's about the size of a walnut, and it wraps around the urethra, and that's where, obviously, the urine flows. And as we age, it starts to increase in size. And as it increases in size, it literally begins to choke off the, the urethra so you don't get the proper voiding. Your body's unable to void and empty properly. And so what happens is you go to the bathroom more frequently, but it's not as satisfying. You're not able to empty properly. And so now you're kind of on the path to this downward spiral when it comes to prostate health. And it, it can be, a, not only is it a physical problem, it, it's, it's a psychological issue. It has a lot of impact on guys. It can be embarrassing. It can impact their self-confidence. It changes your life. For example, right now, Gene, you're on the radio and you do long interviews sometimes. Say if you had to run to the bathroom every 15 minutes or even a half an hour. It would disrupt your, your, your whole rhythm and the way you do things. It's summertime. People are planning vacations. Some guys have to plan where the bathroom is. They get in a car and they're going to drive a few hundred miles or something. They got to know where the bathrooms are. So these things, the health of your prostate has a direct impact on the quality of your life. It's not a simple, single faceted kind of problem. It's multifaceted. Okay, well, the next question is going to relate to that. Okay, how does the prostate gland play a role with our sexual organs? For example, does prostate health yes. and sexual function go hand in hand? The prostate is part of the reproductive system. In fact, the semen that a man produces, well, that's the prostate, plays a key role in producing the semen. So it's very important that your prostate is functioning properly so you can support healthy intimacy, healthy sexual function. It's crucial. So that's why we have to be proactive. We have to feed our prostate key foods, nutrients that will support the health. We're very lucky today that we have nutrients that have been researched extensively that will support the health of the prostate. Okay, so now that you've raised the question, what are the proper steps to maintain good prostate health? All right. There's a tremendous amount of research. And at New Vitality, we have top chemists and researchers. Uh, Roger Mason, for example, who's written a whole book on prostate health. And he's analyzed literally thousands of studies going back 30 years. The end result of that is there's a substance called beta-cytosterol. It's a plant sterol. It's something that occurs in most foods that you eat, plant foods, vegetables, but in smaller amounts. But what's been discovered is when you take higher levels of beta-cytosterol, you now are getting tremendous support for your prostate. And you can't get it. People go and buy a lot of different herbal things. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have gone into health food stores and they've tried the natural route. Maybe they've tried salt palmetto. You'd have to take at least 100 salt palmetto capsules to get the level of beta-cytosterol that we have in the beta-prostate formula. And this is the substance you want. In fact, in Europe, they approach prostate health differently than we do. And the doctors prescribe beta-cytosterol. Actually, it's under prescription in Europe. Luckily, here in the States, we can get it as a food supplement. 
the raw material is readily available, so we can get pure pharmaceutical-grade beta-cytosterol here in the United States, and it provides tremendous support for a man's prostate. So who needs to take this kind of substance? Well, again, once you hit 40 years of age, uh, it's good to be proactive and start taking it. Obviously, if you already have symptoms, which I'm sure a high percentage of your listeners, all the baby boomers out there like us, they have some sort of symptoms invariably. You're not going to the bathroom the way you did when you were 25, and many guys are getting up at night, and it's not going to get better. You have to be proactive. You have to support the prostate. And we're very fortunate that we have an all-natural substance today, along with certain minerals, vitamin D, which all of those are included in the beta prostate. You've been hearing about vitamin D. It's an extraordinary vitamin. And the minerals like zinc and selenium. But coupled with the right level of beta-cytosterol, now you're feeding your prostate really super nutrition that'll make a difference. This formula, we've sold over 2 million bottles of this. Men continue to come back and reorder. They would not reorder this product unless they were getting results. It's very easy to tell whether this product's working or not. That's why New Vitality offers a 100% money-back guarantee on this. So if you're not satisfied, you get your money back. But New Vitality is very confident that you're going to be pleased with the results when you use beta cytosterol that's in the beta prostate formula. And the beta prostate has, as you mentioned, quite a few other ingredients, healthful ingredients. How many men are actually taking this product now? We've had hundreds of thousands of men. It's the number one best-selling natural prostate support formula in the country. Number one. It's growing by leaps and bounds. We have testimonials. You can't believe the file of testimonials we have on, on this formula. How men say they, they will leave home without it. I and mean, they've been taking it for years uh, when they travel and they go on vacation and, and every day. Uh, men today, you mentioned you're a baby boomer. I'm a baby boomer. We are going to be working a long time. <laughs> We're not going to be retiring at 62 uh, or 65. Most of us are going to be working. And you have to stay competitive. You have to stay healthy. You can't allow something like your prostate to slow you down. It's very important that guys our age take the necessary steps to keep ourselves vital, high energy, and without the real cumbersome, multifaceted problems that can come from prostate health. Fast question here. We sure. know how it's going to help us. We know about that special ingredient. Can we just buy this product in the stores or what? Uh, no. The answer is no. If you go to a store, if you go to a health food store, they're going to try to say you saw palmetto or some of this other stuff they have out there today that has no science behind it, pigeum and various nutrients. This form of beta-cytosterol that's been extracted pharmaceutically, New Vitality, remember, is a pharmaceutical-grade manufacturer. You're not going to find this in the stores. Uh, we've seen nothing like this in the marketplace. The way to get it is directly from the manufacturer, New Vitality. And again, it's good manufacturing practices, pharmaceutical grade. You can rest assured you're getting the highest quality nutraceutical. That's what we call it today, nutraceuticals. Okay, so how do we get a hold of the company? All right, there's a special number for you, Gene, and your listeners. And here's that number. I'll give it to you, 1-800-625-5535. This is beta prostate, and when you buy two, you're getting one free. You're getting the third one free. This is a three-month supply, 
5535, and you're also getting a great book on prostate health by chemist, research chemist Roger Mason. It's totally free with your order. Tremendous information on how you can support your prostate health. This is crucial for all the guys out there. 1 800 625 5535. If you're not satisfied again, then you will be satisfied like all the thousands of other men. This is a lifestyle product, this is a quality of life product that will make such a difference in your life. Beta prostate, 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. Hey, Rob Martin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Gene. Great show. The preceding segment was paid for by New Vitality. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. Christopher O'Brien, UFO researcher, paranormal researcher, armchair psychologist, <laughs> experiencer, etc., etc. Hey, at least you haven't hung the cows on me yet, like everybody else does. <laughs> haven't hung the what? Known for. Whoa, 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 whoa! Haven't hung the what? The cows on me, like like the ancient mariner had an albatross around his neck. I got a freaking rotten necrotic cow around mine. <laughs> oh, Jesus! Two hundred mutilation uh, cases that I either investigated or researched. All right, so let's go right to it, man. That's where the well, the, the rich nutrients of this whole thing lies. And well, yeah, the, let's get away from the personalities. Let's go back to the actual. Um, uh, all right, two hundred cattle mutilations. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you, I got, pardon the expression, it's probably not politically correct, but I, I know exactly when I kissed that cow mutilation tar baby. It was my first visit to a ranch on my first case. It was actually a, a case that had occurred 13 years prior. I was given a handful of photographs with a county sheriff. Uh, it was all the evidence that he had in his files for undocumented. At that point, nobody had, had ever documented a single case in Swatch County. And he gave me 24 photographs of cases that had been uh, reported in the mid-70s. And uh, only two of them had any writing on the back, and I was able to ID every single one uh, with the help of a deputy who actually took the photographs. And I was able to find him, and he went through and, and worked with me on it. And so the, the closest one out of the 24 was in the next town over. So I drove out, you know, about 15 miles away. I drove over there and set up a time to, to meet with the, the rancher family. They told me about this bull that they had mutilated in June uh, 1980. They had been sitting there having dinner, and they heard this helicopter fly really low over their house, and they thought it was really strange, that, you know, because it was obvious barely off the deck. And so they, they didn't get up or anything. They just thought, oh, just somebody joyriding around. And uh, about 20 minutes later, they heard it again, and this time it sounded like it was firing up, like uh, it had landed and was now getting ready to leave. So they ran outside, and this old MASH-type helicopter, mustard yellow colored, flew less than 50 feet over their heads, no markings. It was like one of the, the oldest type of helicopters from the early 50s. They thought it was really strange because they could tell it was coming out of their field about a mile away. So they went out there and they found their prized seed bull mutilated. It really freaked them out. They called every airport, aircraft mechanic, any rental place, anybody that could possibly tell them who owned this yellow helicopter. People laughed at them and said, they're just, forget it. They only have a 90 mile range for their tanks for flying and they're astronomically expensive to, to operate. They said, you must have seen something different. And they said, no, this is what 
we saw. So I'm sitting there scribbling notes, and I'm interviewing the family all separately and everything, and, and I thank them, and, and, and they take me out to see the site, and there's a cow 13 years later, the bull, just laying on its back like they left it, and so I took the skull, and I painted it, and it's on my wall. Oh, and um, so I went home, and the next morning, I was typing up my notes, and I hear this vroom, 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 vroom. I look out my window, and what flies right over my house? The yellow helicopter? antique yellow freaking whirly bird flew right over my house. I tell you, I knew right then and there that there was something really bizarre and totally exciting going on. That totally jazzed me. That's when I, the, that paranormal hook got set, you know, and I've been flopping on the line ever since. <laughs> I tell you, that blew me away. And I had five witnesses to it. Everybody, you know, they, I talked to people, did you see that helicopter? Yeah, we were wondering what the hell, you know. So I had, you know, my neighbor saw it and a couple other people in town, and that's when I got hooked. 200 cases later, including quite a number of really weird ones, probably 40 out of those 200, I thought, you know, definitely were unusual. And out of those 40, there's four or five that just stood my hair up. Let's stand everybody's hair up, my friend. Tell us okay. one of those special cases. How do you take a brain out of a skull with no break in the cranium? They only do that in science fiction movies. Exactly. How do you take a spinal cord out without good breaking into the spine? Ditto. Dr. McCoy could do it on Star Trek. No, take it. Pull slits. Let's go back to the brain for a minute. All right. Yep. Did the Egyptians, when they did mummification, not suck brains out literally through the nasal cavity? Yeah, they did. All right. So you're telling me that somebody in uh, five inches of fresh snow, it is yeah. possible. It is possible to do, but in this particular case, no way. All right. So no what happened? It was in a details? pristine uh, fresh snowfall. There wasn't right. one track. There was one drop of blood on the rear left hook. The upper respiratory organs were gone. It, it was like the Garaparanga case in Brazil, very similar in terms of what was done to the animal. It wouldn't rot. He had it in a heated garage for days and days, and it wouldn't rot. And there was like this weird smell of like some medicinal like perfume. It was real faint, but super strong. Very few scent molecules, but they were really, really powerful. You smelled this thing first? I stuck my nose right on it, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, all right. Before I, I would, one of the things I carry in my, my mutilation investigation kit is a, a bottle of Vicks. Because occasionally yeah. you get out on cases where you have the exact nuts. opposite thing happen. The animal's still warm, and when they try to load it up on a flatbed truck, they pull it apart because it's already necrotic. And this yeah. is only hours old. So you have both ends of the spectrum when it comes to, you know, either retarded or advanced necrosis. All right. So this was in, in snow. So there's no tracks in the snow around this thing. Perfect, pristine snowfield. And then we had a report from uh, Highway 160 of a motorist, you know, pretty late at night was driving by and saw these weird spotlights going down in the area where the ranch was. And then uh, a neighbor to the ranch saw the same thing and independent of one another, they both actually were compelled to, uh, to contact the sheriff and report it. And then the following day, the ranch went out and found his calf mutilated. There's photographs on the website of it. And I got really good video of it as well. Getting to a larger question here, we've been talking about cattle mutilations for years. Do you have any impressions at all as to what's going on? Absolutely, I do. Again, this is my theorizing and this is my opinion, but we have multiple groups involved. The majority, and, and again, a lot of these cases are misidentified scavenger uh, and predator action. I don't care what Linda says or anybody else who thinks they know what they're talking about. As soon as the media gets involved in, the, in reporting cases, then every dead cow that people see is mutilated because, you know, scavengers, they attack the rear end of the animal, they go through the bag, they try to get the tongue out. And unless you know what you're looking at, and I'm not a veterinary pathologist, so, you know, officially I don't know what I'm, I'm looking at, but, but I, I'm pretty good at it now. 
I have seen magpies ream the rear end of a cow out in a perfect circle. Perfect circle. I've got photographs on my website of it. I've seen cases where the lightning has hit the animal and, you know, the face is, is burned off and the hoofs are blown off. There's various poison plants that can kill the animals and then, you know, scavengers, even insects can, uh, can really, unless you know what you're looking at and you're a trained eye, you don't, you, think that this is high strange. So out of the 200 cases, 40 of them, I'd say, were definitely done with a sharp instrument. I only had four cases that had indications of high heat, which is a real popular misconception. I had very few cases that were drained to fluids, which is another popular misconception. You know, the, the rancher would call me up and say, they drained this thing, every bit of blood in it, and I'd go out there with my brother, who's a, a big, strong guy, and we'd take the thing, flip it over, and all the goodies that come flowing out mm. gravity takes all Whoa, the, all the goodies oh. well whatever i'm trying to yeah. trying to be uh like this pretty uh this is not a pleasant you know area of investigation but you know it, was a, it had to be done i worked with five county sheriff's departments i worked with you know a number of investigative people and uh one point i was even going to work with nids a little bit of course then all my cases dried up so i never had a chance to work with nids which is probably a good thing what do you mean your cases dried up we didn't have a case for six years so when they had all all my vets trained and uh, they all had protocols and we had all the funding together for you know for testing you know necropsies in the field we had i had a budget for for vets and and pathologists to go out and you know and do field investigations and as soon as all that was in line i worked with you know george onet uh, dr onet at Ed nids and, and and colin keller i didn't have a case for six years now let's jump back for a minute to those five standout cases we were talking about before i, I want to make sure we don't miss any of them you had the one where brain upper respiratory removed not obvious. You had spinal cord removed. Did I get that right? Correct. Uh, Reamed like, out with no evidence that it was ever there. Okay. That's pretty damn weird. Uh, yeah. What else? There was a case. Oh, man. I, I wouldn't know where to start. The advanced necrotic cases were really weird where the animal was almost still warm and uh, you could pull it apart because it was already rotted. Um, the animal was alive the day before. I mean, in, in, in fairly cool weather as well, not, not like a hot summer day or anything. There was the one case that I researched. I didn't actually investigate this one. This was back in the 70s where, um, a 1,700-pound huge bull was found inside an abandoned adobe shack on a low, super heavy-duty table. The thing couldn't even fit walking through the door, let alone being carried through the door. And that's that's a classic one too that I count among those five because that's one of the <laughs> one of the most impressive cases that I've ever heard of. We just had five cases down in Argentina. Hell, they they drained a watering pond. And then there was a case a few years ago where they drained a sixty thousand gallon cistern and then dropped I, the animal inside of it. I was uh, I was reading about uh, yeah, and Scott Corrales's uh, Inexplicata right. blog. He was talking about where yeah, there were these mutilations, and also there was this whole pond that like overnight was just emptied of water. Right. Well, that's happened before down there. Yeah. Well, they're in the middle of some kind of a weird flap that's been going yeah, on. But yeah, there's been some severely. Scott's come on the show and talk about. There's talk always about this. stuff going on down there. It's a really spooky yeah. place down there. Oh yeah, Argentina is a very. Uh, and, and again, but these things go in flaps. So you're describing this weird stuff that's going on for a number of years, and then the minute you're ready to really pursue it, activity stops. Well, I'm ready. I bury the hatchet with NIDS. I dog NIDS for years, right from the time that Linda parted company with them, and they decided, uh, you know, to put a website up and stuff. Um, I was one of the only people in the field that was dogging them to publish, to share your data. 
work with other investigators. And I'm sure Bigelow hates me because I, I, I think I'm one of the reasons why he actually published anything because I was so veriferous about my just dogging him, dogging him. And, you know, you don't want to get John Alexander too too angry at you. It's Gordon Novel and some of these people. That oh, man, you just brought up John Alexander, and that's a whole no- man, that's a whole other episode. Well, he's, he was the managing director of NIDS for a long time. Oh, he was? Yeah. Uh huh. All right. Now, then makes me want to ask you about what you know about the Skinwalker Ranch situation. I was the first national investigator up there. Really? I met Terry Sherman. I was one, I met him before Linda did. I met him. The only person that had been up there was Junior Hicks and Ryan Layton. I was up there right as the article came out. Zach Van Ex Desiree News article. I was there before it actually came out. <laughs> Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Christopher O'Brien joining us. First person over at Skinwalker Ranch. What can you tell us that we don't already know from the book written by... <laughs> with nobody now. on the record, even the scientists who were there, not even on the record. I, you know, I, I still, when I see George, I, well, I don't really say it now, but I, I was one of the first people to review the book, and that's the first thing I said was, how could you only have four, maybe five people on the record on that thing when you had a world-class scientific group there? What's up with that? One of the cases that they had there, when the people were actually in the field and they turned around and the calf was mutilated, that's one of the most bizarre ones I've ever heard of. Well, that was really spooky. What happened? They were out checking their cows. They were out in the field. They walked by the calf and the mother, and they walked a couple hundred, three hundred yards or something down, maybe a quarter mile down, and then turned around and walked back, and the thing was mutilated. In that short time? They didn't see yeah. anything? They didn't hear yeah, in, anything? in minutes. Then there was another case, I think, where his kid was on the other side of some bushes, heard a, a weird whirring sound, and saw some flash, silvery flash, and came back around, and, and there was one mutilated. And it would happen within feet of him, in broad daylight. Both of these happened in broad daylight. Let's rewind for a minute here. Chris, I want to ask you a question. So in looking at all of the mutilation stuff, you have 200 cases. You have 50 that really, maybe 150 conventional descriptions, 50. Well, they, they, they were equivocal. You know, it could be this, could be that. You know, um, the first thing I do is look for cut hair follicles. If the hair follicles have been cut by anything, then it's a mutilation. Animals That's, tear right. flesh. They don't in hide. They don't cut it. Coyotes, you know, got bad breath, but not that bad. They can't cut hide. So All that's right. the first thing I looked. Out of, out of those 200, I had about 40 that definitely were, were these animals were disfigured and mutilated. Absolutely. So your From, question, out of those. All right. No, okay. So, so, so out of those, right, what things were consistent with all of them? If there was any, if there were any elements that were consistent and what things were not? But let's talk really the, the most relevant one. I think it's the first part of the question. What things were consistent about these 
cattle in terms of how they've been processed, handled? There really is no rhyme or reason. Generally, there was no footprints, no, no evidence at all of anything in the field other than the animal or the herd. I've only had a few cases where the farm uh, animals uh, react at night, like dogs barking, that sort of thing. Very mm-hmm. rarely would you ever have the, and, and these ranch dogs, I mean, that, that's their job and they're good at it. They bark at anything. Other than that, um, there's, and I think three or four of them, I'd have to kind of go back and sort of refresh my memory on them, but there were a number of them that had strange lights that were seen, or they occurred during time periods where we had, uh, you know, a flap of uh, sightings going on in the valley, uh, generally in the area where the animals were found. Um, geez, I had seven animals that were on the Alamosa River or canals going into it, and that's the only spot in the valley that there may be any pollution. The San Luis Valley is pristine. It's the most pristine area of the 48 lower states. There's no pollution there, none. And if you go up the Alamosa River 40 miles up into the San Juans, there's a Superfund site from a bad cyanide leaching operation up below the Summerville gold mine. And so the top 17 miles of the river are trashed, and then the river comes down, and all along the river for a two-year period, we had seven cases, and either on the river or in canals connecting to the river. And then I found out later, there was a whistleblower from the, uh, they had a guy named Brian Rimmer who had a herd of sheep on the Alamosa River because they were testing for heavy metals. And uh, the EPA it was testing, and what, what would they do? They'd raise sheep there for 90 days, for three months, and then they'd mutilate them and, and do complete uh, workups on their organs and stuff. And they found that they should have been dead from the amount of copper and heavy metals that they had in them. But uh, I find it interesting that I should, you know, seven cases in a row should be on the Alamosa River uh, along with an EPA freaking study. Yeah. Weird. So, you know, in a couple of those cases were obvious uh, human done. I think most of the 40 were done by humans. There was only a handful that were high strange, and those generally were the ones at the beginning of the wave. For, mm. You'd have your high strange ones, and then all of a sudden you'd have others that you know weren't done with high heat or, or weren't high strange and, and appeared to be done with sharp scalpels or something, or, or super sharp uh, skin and knife. A lot of these, most of these don't have the kind of the quarterization things that are described. No, very few of them do. And, and a lot of the cases that people think are cauterized aren't at all. It's what happens when the animal bloats, the skin stretches, and then it contracts after it's dried out. NIDS has a paper on their website, if it's still up, that did a complete study on that. So that's that's a bit of a misnomer. I've had some cases. Uh, I had one case that had cookie-cutter incision. That's real rare. That was one of the five. Um, that was a very strange one. Is there a portion of these cases that you think it's just being done by hoaxers? If there are, there are very, very few. It is really difficult to... <laughs> I don't think I can go out at night if I was even a professional butcher and just do this. No. And not leave any trace, no blood, no footprints, no tire prints. These things are being lifted up, taken away, experimented on, and then dropped back in a different location. That's why you never find tracks, right? And I think a vast majority of these these cases, and this is my opinion, Mm -hmm. uh, a vast majority of the human-perpetrated cases are some quasi-governmental agency that's monitoring for prion disease in the food chain. I've been saying that for years. Ted Oliphant's been saying that for years. NIDS finally came up with this big announcement that, oh, they think that the cattle mutilations are all, you know, mad cow disease, uh, people checking for mad cow disease. That would explain why the location seems to be what's important, not the particular animal. I mean, obviously, if you wanted to mutilate cows, you could go, or Linda says, you know, get blood and genetic material. Just go to your local slaughterhouse. they got more into that stuff than you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. You know how many cows we mutilate a day in this country for food? 
Yeah, McDonald's is uh, doing pretty good with that. <laughs> it's now, a big, t- super freaking, you know, closet subject in this country. Of course, the beef industry is one of the most powerful lobbies in the country. Yeah, ask Oprah. She'll tell you about that. Yeah. yeah. Ask so, Oprah. Go back to that cookie cutter case you were talking about. Cookie cutter incisions. Okay. Please describe. It just seemed like the animal, it's almost, you know, I described it on the video that I did of it. I described it. It's like somebody unzipped it. It's the only way. Like it, it had a zipper. And somebody unzipped it and, and pulled the hide off away from, you know, the incisional area. It looked like you could have put a zipper on it and zipped it up. That's how perfect it was. That was one of my early cases. I didn't, I wasn't able to get any forensic testing done on that one, but um, it was missing uh, its hooves, uh, the hoof material as well, which is pretty strange. Uh, the hoofs uh, were blown off. You know, the actual fingernail-like material, the gelatin yeah. material yeah. on the hoof was, was uh, blown off. But there was no uh, indication of any burns or anything on the animal like it had been hit by lightning, and lightning wouldn't leave that sort of evidence behind anyway. That's rare. That's pretty rare. They did have some cases. I know Linda has uh, a number of uh, very well-documented cases uh, from Montana. Um, I think there was some in Texas that, that have that cookie-cutter incision look to them. Uh, the case I had didn't have quite the obvious cauterization. It didn't have the obvious cooked hemoglobin or stuff like that. Obviously, we couldn't determine that unless we got it tested. But, you know, while John Altshuler was alive, I did work pretty closely with him. He was a hematologist in Denver who actually was the mystery pathologist or doctor that examined Snippy the Horse back in 67 when he was in residency. When he was a kid, he swore he'd never go back to the valley again. And I finally talked him into it. And he flew down with Timothy Good, and we almost got in a midair collision because all our radios went out. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> that's a great. Story. Yes, that's funny. That's got to be exciting. Now, you know, sometimes you wonder about that. Is that in itself a paranormal event where things like that happen? Oh, absolutely. We were going over the dry lakes where these things have been happening for years. I said, let's fly over the dry lakes. A lot of weird stuff has happened there. He had five radios. Now, I didn't know planes had multiple radios. It makes sense. But he had five radios. And he called into the to Bergman Field and said, hey, this is, you know, so-and-so, uh, such-and-such, who you have permission to land. And uh, nobody answered. And we thought, oh, the guy must be out. You know, it's country airport. You know, not a big deal. Uncontrolled airspace, pretty much. And we thought the guy was in taking a leak or something. And so we landed. And we see this guy come running out, waving his hands. And... Right as we get off the runway, whoa, this plane lands right behind us. <laughs> and he, you know, the guy, and then all of a sudden the radio works, and the guy goes, I don't know who you are, but that was close. You know, it was like one of those things. The guy wasn't very happy. Uh, and, boy, I'll tell you, that control tower guy or whatever, the, the Bergman Field guy, he reamed on a new one. I've never seen somebody turn light as a ghost like that. Ask him good about that. The next time he comes on, we'll have to have a yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. Ask him about his flight down to the San Luis Valley to visit Chris O'Brien with John Altshuler. <laughs> Obviously, oh, was... he never wanted to visit you again. Uh, yeah, Tim. I don't know. You know, some of these name celebrity people—they kind of stay away from me. Yeah, you sound to be the touch of near-death experiences. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. 
That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Christopher O'Brien, who can cause people to have near-death experiences in the air. He psychoanalyzes. Don't blame it on witnesses. me. <laughs> hey, they blame everything on us. Okay, we're okay. witch burners. Right. We're Calvinists. We're right. going to destroy so the world the tomorrow. Blame. I'll take some of the blame. Okay, we're responsible for the global recession. I think is that a new one? That, that's happening too. Oh, I think. that's a new one. No, we're we're behind George Norrie's drooping mustache. Anyway. Because someone com- complained about our George Norrie mustache jokes. We haven't made one in like two years. So there. Yeah. Okay. His mustache has its own zip code. All right. Leave us alone. All right. <laughs> back to the, back to the San Luis Valley. All right. Because, you know, you're, you, you've got this book coming out. I do indeed. And it's, got, it, it's got this word trickster associated. Oh, does it ever. So what are we talking about here, man? Are you saying it's a that? whole new theory that I'm putting forth in how to look at uh, paranormal events. The 9,000-pound gorilla has been in the room the whole time, and everybody's just been totally in denial. Okay, now, so what is the 9,000-pound gorilla? The oldest archetype known to man, older than kings, older than heroes, older than uh, any other archetype in the collective, is the trickster. It's what Keel called an ultra-terrestrial, just substitute ultra-terrestrial for trickster. We're talking about Mac Tony's crypto-terrestrials? We're talking about some older life force that's been on the planet longer than we have? It's and- a force, exactly. It's a force, and I think the, the best way to describe it is it is the mechanism that is coordinating synchronicity and coincidence to what end that's a very good question yeah i guess you'll have to read the book here let me give you an analogy okay all right i came up with an analogy it's pretty pretty cool let's say the paranormal phenomenon are like a pudding stone which is a very rare rock found in the san luis valley it's conglomerate it has different types of rock that are stuck together by igneous, uh, by molten rock. And so you have a rock that you can look into it and you can see different types of rocks in there. Let's say each one of those little different types of rock is a different type of paranormal phenomenon. Ghosts, UFOs, this, that, or the other thing. That rock, let's take that rock and then toss it into a pond. The water of the pond is that big collective front-loaded subconscious, all our legends, all our, all our belief systems, Everything that makes the culture what it is, is the pond. The event, the paranormal event, which generally is a combination of events that all appear to happen kind of at once, is the splash. The ripples coming off the splash are the effect of that event in the culture. And if you have several rocks going in various time spaces, then you have interference patterns where waves hit waves. Does that make sense? You follow me? We like to call that modulated waveforms. Modulated waveforms, there you go. Well, it would be, uh, yeah, they're not harmonic, definitely. So No, no, they're cross-modulated. Har- cross-modulated. A harmony. Cross-modulated waves, yeah, there you yeah, go. Cross-modulated waveforms, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the trickster is the one that throws the rock in the pond. <laughs> but what, is he skipping the rocks? Is he trying to hit the fish in the water? Is he seeing how what kind of crazy waveforms will result? Is he just bored and he's just trying to screw with us? Okay, let's put it. 
Jung said that the one thing we have to fear the most about the trickster is that he's unconscious. Most people don't know what the trickster is. You, you think trickster, you think, uh, well, Coyote's a trickster, yeah. He's one of three different classifications of, of trickster. What my book is, is a quick, very peripheral look at what tricksters are. There are thousands of tricksters in all cultures all around the world. There's thousands of them. I picked out the ones that represented whole groups of tricksters. And then I looked at, at, at correlations between them. But the whole idea of, of tricksters, they're the oldest archetype. And Jung said the thing that we have to fear the most is that they're unconscious. Well, I think that they, sure, maybe back in, you know, 7,000 years ago when people were anthropomorphizing tricksters onto crows and ravens and, and uh, coyotes and, and, and what have you, yeah, they were unconscious. There's some gender uh, questions there. Sometimes the trickster could, could be cross-gender. But the trickster is not a static force. It, it, it evolves just like we have evolved. And so my supposition here or my, my, my theory is that the trickster has evolved. And because of, of the monotheistic, you know, patriarchal cultures that have arisen in the last 5,000 years, he's been shoved off behind, you know, out of the way and into the closet. He's still there, and he's evolving along with us. And the trickster's most important role in most societies was to take technology from the gods and give it to man, give it to humans. Sounds like a good thing rather than a trick. Well, see, that's where the word trickster is not really the proper word. It was coined in, in the 1880s, I think, or 1870s. Uh, it's a fairly recent word, and it has to do with uh, the Winnebago Indians and some northern, uh, you know, northern U.S. Uh, Indian tribes and, and southern Canadian Indian tribes was, was where the term was first applied, and now it's become this amorphous term that, that sort of encompasses them all. My book goes into some detail about how we can differentiate between all these different forms. You know, this is the, the next step beyond keel basically is what what i'm i, I think i'm shooting for here mm -hmm. it's been a hell of a process where I, I bit off a lot when i decided to do this book and i agreed to do it i had no idea what i'd gotten into i was just going to tell some cool stories and whip it out and you know be my first beyond the mysterious valley book you know but now it's you know it, it could be a, a, a pretty good reference book i think and of course the reviewers will have their way with me i'm sure about that but you know we'll see I just think it's a, it's an exciting new way to look at something that's been, we've been spinning our wheels in ufology for 60 years. We're no closer than we were in when Kenneth Arnold fired up that freaking little plane. We're no closer now than we were then. And that's because we are, it's a force for the trees thing. We're not looking back far enough to try to ID the force, the agenda that's behind all this stuff. And it's, it's, I've heard it several times, you guys relating in some of your interviews that you feel that the paranormal is closely connected. Uh, that a lot of these divergent phenomena that appear to be separate are actually connected in some way. Right. And that way, the glue that connects them is the trickster. Okay, a couple things, a couple questions off of that, Chris. Does Some people would say, well, okay, that's an awfully convenient unified field theory for all mm -hmm. this stuff. Does that preclude, in your opinion, the possibility or the probability that sometimes... A rose is a is a rose, or or however that saying goes. Does that does that mean that sometimes if we see like for example the infamous Skylab episode where three astronauts in the Skylab shoot a photo of this insane object floating out in space, 
It's uh, in Paul Kimball's Best Evidence documentary. I think it was, uh, I forget that, 73 or something. I don't have the data right in front of me, but photograph, photographic evidence. They were able to do a calculation of the size of this thing. So, in no, that example, so. right? It doesn't you mean that so- there's no aliens either. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that this whole scenario is infinitely more complex than we could ever imagine. But I think that there is an underlying principle when you look at a closed system scenario. Now, once you get outside of that closed system, then you're opening yourself up to all sorts of other right. possibilities and potential. Other stuff. Other now. stuff. Exactly. But how do we know that they're not tricksters coming from some other well, outside trickster as well? well you know? Absolutely you right. This is this is like a crazy rabbit hole. Now exactly. along those same lines, you know, there are people who have said because I've on the Paracast I've gone public with some of my paranormal experiences where I had co witnesses or people with me. Mm-hmm. We're talking about time dilation, full body apparition sightings, UFO sightings. Are there some people, and people said to me, well, what's up with you? You've got to be making this up. No one single person has all this weird stuff happen. Oh, not and, true. Well, not exactly. True. And I say, well, well, I don't know why me. Hell, I don't know, but I know what I saw. So is there a, a propensity for certain people to, yes. to be able to yes. witness this? I, I really firmly uh, sense that, that, that that's the case. It's only my opinion. You know, uh, you and I probably together have seen uh, and experienced more stuff than entire, you know, towns of 100,000 people. I mean, relatively speaking, per capita, yeah. And I think certain people are magnets for this stuff for some reason. I haven't really dove into why that is. I'm not talking the Stan Romanacs of the world or the Billy Myers either. I'm talking about the, the, the unsung people that don't look for any sort of notoriety, that don't take their magical flute and play it and try to be the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Right. Or get a cadre of uh, believers supporting their hoaxing or whatever. I'm not talking about that. There are people, and I've met some, that are just magnets for this stuff. Ray Stanford, oh my God. you got to get Ray on. Do you even know who he is? Hey, Gene. Didn't you go to school with Ray Stanford, Gene? <laughs> I know who he is. If you have his contact information, send it to I me do off indeed. the air. And we will explore that. Mm-hmm. He's the only person that I know of that can pull me back towards the ETH. And he's he's pulled me back a little bit, not all the way, but he has pulled me back somewhat. What did he do to pull you back towards the ETH? Film 49 UFO sightings with a film camera, including the famous opening sequence to the show In Search Of, and then spend decades analyzing his data. He is the most observant person probably in America that I know of. He's a psychic paleontologist. He's totally thrown what we thought we knew about East Coast paleontology topsy-turvy because of all the tracks that he's found inside the Beltway in Maryland. They're doing an exhibit of his baby uh, dinosaur tracks at the Smithsonian. They're starting, I think, here in a week or two. I mean, the guy is off the charts with his uh, observational acuity. Nobody can touch him. You can show him any picture of anything or anybody, and he'll tell you anything you want to know about him or it. Okay, so is it the photographs that bring you back towards the ETH or what? It's talking to Ray and, and having his incredible recall in his, uh, you know, 55 years in the field. You talked about the Socorro sighting with uh, Lonnie Zamora. Right. Ray investigated that case with Alan Hynek and got metal scrapings from the landing pods that really? bladed off onto the rocks. And Richard Hall arranged for Goddard to have it tested, and they stole it. What? 
Oh, yeah. What the hell's going on here? I mean, what? Have you ever read Socorro's uh, Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry? It's the finest book ever written about a single UFO case. It's a great oh. book. It, it'll just blow you out of the water with this guy. This guy is, talk about a hard data dude. I mean, his his thinking is that they, these are coming in grandmother ships from long distances, They which are 14 miles long. They disgorge mother ships, which are uh, 1.4 miles, or I forget, 14,000 feet or whatever long. And then those shoot out the, the, the black triangles, and then those shoot out the scout ships. And he's got uh, photographic evidence from a flight that he took uh, over Arkansas in 77 where he filmed this uh, going on in broad daylight. He also has photographic evidence during an air- airline flight over Mexico where an object looms for several frames. He shot at twice the frames, I think 56 frames per second with a film camera now, not, not video. And the thing looms right up to the airliner and the magnetic field is so strong it optically collapses the horizon. Do you have any idea how monumental that is? Oh, what that's you crazy. With that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's amazing. He's known everybody in the field. He debunked Daniel Fry, Adamski, George Hunt Williamson. He spent two months with him in Peru in the 50s. And I mean, the guy has just been there and done that and was there as a teenager. He started. He got his first film in '56. I understand what he's done, but I got to ask you here. Actually, Gene is that old. That's the scary part. Yeah, very scared. I am 427 years old. I have a picture in the closet, getting younger, not older, and I get worse. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. And it's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk-free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Christopher O'Brien, and he's telling us how he is occasionally drawn back to the ETH, but I'm not seeing why. I'm seeing, okay, maybe there's some great photographs out there. Hard data, hard data and hard science. The rationale for, for why would something come here in small little shifts, they have to come in large carrier vehicles and then disgorge smaller vehicles, which disgorge smaller vehicles. If you're a closed system phenomenon, you wouldn't have to do that. So the only reason why you do that is because you're coming great distances, whether it's dimensional, whether it's uh, physical time, space time, I, I don't know. All I know is I've always been a keel valet aficionado, and that doesn't endear me to the, the rank and file ETHs. 
shoes by any stretch. In fact, I, I've been kicking their shins for years now. And then I meet someone like Ray and really get friendly with him. I've actually gotten his entire ufological life story down in a transcript, which uh, is waiting for his permission to publish. That was a two-year project. But, uh, yeah, hard scientific analysis of, of, of evidence. And his, I really am very, very impressed with uh, Ray's uh, knowledge and his scientific knowledge and his, his observational acuity is just unparalleled. I, well, I don't but, know anybody that can come close to him. Well, well, here's the thing, Chris. So what does he then think of your theory of the trickster reality? I haven't even talked to him about it yet. I, I, I've been cringing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mentioned that I was writing a book on tricksters, and he goes, yeah, that figures. You know, kind of like, well, good luck with that one, pal. You know, careful what you wish for. <laughs> I've had so many people say, oh, that's a dangerous subject. So many people get a negative feeling when they hear that, that I'm writing a book on tricksters. It's like, ooh. Well, no, because I think what happens is that they, they sort of take, you know, the etymology of it is they, they take that word, and so that word basically, I, I guess in their minds, implies something trying to mess with our heads and, well, uh, yeah. and, they don't, and and they don't and they don't like that they don't like people don't like to think that they're being messed with they want to think that they're in complete control of their reality and uh you know it's like well no no i know what i saw i know what i saw it's like well though no, you know you, you know what your your eyes did with the light that it sent to your brain exactly but there's there's a bunch of stuff in between that everything is subject to interpretation i mean and that's what we are we're just we're walking talking uh, interpretation uh, bio machines so the whole thing with parapsychology and why why science has such a difficult time reconciling the fact that they can't freaking define and explain consciousness because they have to have consciousness in order to do it it's that it's the paradox it's that paradox paradox you know how do you how do you dissect the brain if the brain what you're using to dissect it with. It's like, well, <laughs> well, I don't know. You can do that. You can do that, but you can't dissect that electrical thing that makes you uh, a walking bio-sensing uh, machine. And in the process, it allows you to actualize that. Consciousness is, is the big sticking point in, in you know, forget, yeah. you know, dark matter and dark energy and stuff. Just explain how we can think and then think about thinking and then think about trying to explain how we can think about thinking. I mean, it's just a hall of mirrors. It's well, just yeah, never ending. You come back to the whole thing of, you know, science. This is where the, these realms diverge, where, you know, science is the how and philosophy is the why. They shouldn't cross over. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They're both playing out simultaneously. Exactly. How, how can you divorce them? People seem to always try to fit things into one box or the other. You talk about the paranormal, and you have the people on the scientific side going, you know, all we want to know is the science. And you have the people on the philosophical, the religious side saying, all we want to know is about the spiritual. And it's like, well, now, wait a minute. Isn't there a place in the middle where these things overlap? And maybe there are other facets of this jewel we're not seeing because of our vantage point. What do you think about that, Chris? You know, again, I think we're entering into a whole new period of uh, it's a melding of science and spirit. Uh, there's no question about it in my mind. As a matter of fact, I, I recently uh, did a video project uh, that was in three parts. Uh, the first part was the nature of reality. 
the psychic matrix, and then the, uh, the fusion of science and spirit. And basically, it took all your top brains, uh, Kaswami and, and, uh, Dean Radin and Bill Tiller and all these people, and we asked them these very, uh, rudimentary questions. And, and the basic, I think, uh, thing that came out of, of this is that it's like this thing that science has yet to reconcile itself. So spirit is, uh, spirit, uh, in, you know, the whole metaphysical, uh, realm, is I think is more ready to be accepting of the scientific side as, as opposed to the other way around. But uh, we're at a point now where we've gotten to an impasse with how much that we can actually scientifically determine and prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And at some point, we're going to have to take that leap. There's going to be a merging of those two areas. And I think it's really very uh, studious to come up with uh, that observation. I, I really do feel that these are exciting times. And uh, I think we're actually behind the curve on this. We, we really need to reconcile the two and, and you know, bury the hatchet. People in the scientific community, they, they by and large, they don't want to hear about this stuff. It, no, it's like, no. it, it totally runs counter to everything that they've been trained to ignore and, and to laugh at. But when you start bringing elements like the, the true nature of consciousness and deep archetypes in the collective, like the trickster form, which again is, is I, someone's got to come up with a better term. I probably will, will attempt to at some point come up with a better term than trickster. But for lack of a better term, I, I think that these are areas that are really at the cutting edge of consciousness studies and are at the cutting edge of that merging of science and, and spirituality. I think the whole outmoded religious control structures on this planet are, are not long for this world. No, they and just don't make the results. Make you've seen the results of this in, in the Middle yeah. East and this conflict of culture and, and this civilization, you know, this clash of civilization thing is just, you know, either we're going to bomb ourselves back to the Stone Age or Gaia's going to, you know, you know, Mayan prophecy twinge, kick us off like fleas off a dog shaking, or uh, we're going to get get beyond it and, and get outside of ourselves a little bit. We need more people thinking outside of the box. And we don't have enough. There aren't enough uh, Machu Kakus and people like that uh, in the scientific community. Dean Radin would be a good example. Yeah, I want to mention something about that because um, I actually just recently read The Conscious Universe. And uh, that had been on my reading list for a long time. And, and finally, uh, the stars lined up and I finally read it. And I thought, well, man, this is something that everybody interested in these topics should read this book. Here Absolutely. it is. You know? You want, They've you absolutely want... proven that they're psychic force, that there's, there's yeah. telekinesis. I mean, beyond any shadow of a doubt. I don't care who you are and how jaded and how debunkerish you are. Raiden and, and others have come up with irrefutable, unequivocal evidence that suggests that there is a psychic force that somehow binds itself together with consciousness and the unconscious. And, I mean, our unconscious mind is picking up way more than our conscious mind is picking up. And he's proven this. It's just like, uh, you know, the, the wonderful experiment they did in uh, Greg Braden talks about where they, they had these people meditating in the Middle East uh, during the height of the, the Lebanese conflict in the 80s. And for some inexplicable reason, all conflict stopped during the whole period that they did this round-robin meditation. And as soon as they stopped it, boom, the conflict started. Or the, the spike in the, in the, the egg uh, before 9-11. And, you know, the, the, I think the most recent biggie is the election of Obama. I mean, there is a... Collective. I, I've always equated uh, human consciousness as being like individual synapses in a giant brain. We're all individual 
like a solar system in a galaxy. We're all self-contained, but at the same time, we, we also have a function in the, in the collective as well. More work needs to be done by, by you know, hard-boiled science in this, this uh, realm. Uh, Chris, uh, here's yeah. the thing, and I don't want to give it, give it away yet, but we're going to have a guest that oh, I, I promise you no one talking about this stuff has ever heard about. It's a guy I found totally by accident. You want to talk about synchronicity and serendipity. A guy found totally by accident. But when this guy comes on, we're going to be talking about all these topics in a way that no one would ever expect from the Paracast. It's, going to, it's really going to say, it's going to make people go, what the hell is this? And it, it goes right into these topics, exactly cool. into this stuff. And, and I think this is important because there are a lot of people out there who have been lately attacking the Paracast that, oh my God, we're just here to... Uh, we've been referred to as the UFO Taliban, and all of this really. Oh yeah, yeah. You're really kidding do- me? No. No. Yeah, no. You guys are puppy dogs, man. You're sweethearts. How could anybody no, call yeah, you that? No, 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 no. Because somehow, in fact, apparently, somebody sent me an email weeks before anybody's hearing this that uh, we're uh, on some thread. I've been referred to as the Godzilla of the UFO world, destroying everything in my path. And it's like, yeah, here's the deal. I'm the Godzilla blowing fire at the stuff that's crap, so it basically <laughs> yeah, exactly. goes I mean, away. Yeah, exactly. I got to burn off the dross. I mean, come on. You know, hey, if and, you're Godzilla, can I be the head of your fan club? <laughs> no, man. You could be the little baby Godzilla shooting the little puff rings. That, <laughs> I love that little creature. <laughs> Ugly as hell, man. Oh, you, you know, on the monster, uh, what is it? Des- uh, destroy all monsters. Career, career builder, somebody's little mascot that they're doing. Oh, no, man, come on. No, ser- but no, seriously, in these episodes, I'm really happy that we're starting to go in this direction with the show and, and talk about these things that people would normally not associate with the kind of reputation we've built. And again, people seem to think that all we're doing is going after people and engaging in personal attacks. Well, you know what? Some people deserve to be chopped down. If you can't call a spade a spade, then you shouldn't be on the air. That's my. That's what I think. Well, you know, this is why you, Christopher O'Brien, are the most treasured of the new Paracast friends and inner circle, because you, sir, get it. You know, I, I am so thrilled. And I told Gene before we did this, uh, this interview, I said, man, this is going to be so much fun. This is going to rock. And I said that on the forums as well. And sure enough, Chris, this has rocked. Right. Really well, we just started. We just barely scratched the surface. Yeah, man. man. No, this go. This go. We're going. This going to be a whole lot more of this. And oh, if yeah. certain people don't like it because we basically call them on their crap, too freaking bad. I That's agree. the deal. I absolutely agree. I have always been really. I've kept ufology and mainstream paranormal research at arm's length. Some of the stuff that is coming out now, like for instance in the, in the haunting investigations, I have been involved in the last few years in some, some really groundbreaking stuff in, in, in going to, to location-specific sites, which I think are one of the best ways for us to really make some leaps ahead. And, and I can't wait to get back on and tell you about Dead Whisper and some of the projects that we've been doing, some of the experiments that we're coming up with. It's just mind-blowing what we're coming up with and uh, this is a, we, we're living that Chinese curse may you live in interesting times you know I wouldn't have it any other way I'm so glad to be alive right now um, this is really exciting stuff 
there's so many people down on what's going on uh, in the world. And you know, if you're a young soul and, and and you you know your world is rocked easily, I could see why you'd think that. But you know, I think there's others of us that are seeing the potential of this wonderful crossroads that we're at as, as a species. And, you know, it dovetails out in every direction, and it's all tied up. It's all connected. Can you tell I live in, used to live in Sedona? <laughs> you know what happened I have here? What happened here is that he found out I lived in Arizona, and he wanted to get as far away as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and who could blame him for that? <laughs> oh look, I'm I'm treating Gene Porty just like so, someone said. I yeah, someone said I cut you off all the time and I talk you down. David, go ahead and heal. Damn the torpedoes! Full speed ahead. Okay, John Paul Jones. <laughs> Forget all that stuff, man. Oh man, you know, and you know that you're starting to do the right thing and start to make waves and 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 have an impact. When the detractors start coming out and start whining. Oh, boy, are they yeah. whining. Oh. Well, it's a personal problem. They'll get over it. Okay, I'm looking here at a list of your books. Tell your listeners about your existing books and also about the one that's coming out with the word that people don't want to hear. <laughs> My first book was The Mysterious Valley. It came out in 1996. It covered the first two and a half years of my investigative work. Enter the Valley went into some real deep research into the history of the San Luis Valley and came out in 99. That covered my work up until 97. I had a long time to think about, 10 years to think about how I was going to approach my third book and I decided to do a compilation book. It's called Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. The first two books don't have much theorizing in it. Secrets does. It also has some really good cases that I had in the meantime. It talks, it gives a full uh, thing about my relationship with Lawrence Rockefeller, which I kept pretty secret for a long time. I mean, it also has a, a, an abduction case that just defies description, groundbreaking. My latest book, which I'm really not, my publisher doesn't want me to talk about it yet because it's not in the stores, but it will be in the stores uh, three weeks to a month. It's called Stalking the Trickster. It is your one-stop shop to find out what tricksters are, and they're very, very important. I also expand the definition. I redefine what a trickster is. I bring in uh, neo-tricksters, uh, if you will, quasi-tricksters, and then come up with a very interesting theory that involves cybernetic presence in a net and possibly what the UFO agenda could be and how they're enacting that agenda. I get into some pretty uh, pretty interesting, probably will be controversial theorizing. If you ever want, we're interested in knowing about the most ancient archetype known to humankind, older than the gods, older than the heroes, older than the kings. It's the trickster, and I have spent a year working on this book. It's really been a process. Where do our listeners get a hold of you if they want to find out more about this stuff? Well, Ventures Unlimited Press is my publisher. Also, my website is OurStrangePlanet.com. There's a ton of good stuff on there every day, and my entire database is there. So they can't say it's a secret. They can't say the silence group has it. It's there for everyone. Exactly. I don't care what agency you're from or what grade school you're from. You're welcome to my data. Christopher O'Brien, thank you for joining us this week on the Paracast. You guys are great, man. Keep up the good work, and uh, you know, forget those torpedoes, man. Most of them are duds anyway. Absolutely. Thank you, sir, for spending the last couple of hours with us. It will not be the last time we speak with Christopher O'Brien. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. 
Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.